You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Doctrines of who and all that Christ is is given in this, the end of the first and the beginning of the second chapter of Colossians, the idea that Christ himself participated in the creation, that he is the fullness of God, that he's the revelation of the great mystery of God from ages past, and that he, therefore, as he comes to earth incarnate in the man Jesus and is known by us through faith, we know and have access to the fullness of God. And then the wonderful statement that we've already been through, that he actually put to death the sinful nature of believers and the powers against them by nailing them to his cross. That's where we ended last time. So listen now to Colossians as I read 2, beginning at 16 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These were all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in in restraining sensual indulgence." Our Father, we ask that you be our teacher. As always, we need your spirit. You gave this word. You must stir it alive and apply it. We ask that in your holy name. Amen. A religious colony once thrived in Lancaster County, not so very far from here, that never was all that large in numbers, I believe, At its height, the most dedicated core of people in this group was not exceeding a hundred people. And yet they achieved a brief kind of fame. Like so many things, their society began with the charismatic personality of a particular leader who inspired others, a man who started out in rather orthodox beliefs within the Reformation time, but who drifted. He drifted into mysticism and into adding many inventions and rules to what we would call the central orthodox faith of Christ. Those who followed 
this man's lead took particular vows. Men and women had to live apart in separate buildings, and by strict rules, they did not have contact. They were celibate in their lives. They had a mainly vegetable diet, a daily routine that allowed them approximately six hours for sleep on hard rack beds. Very firm bodily self-denial was practiced. Humility towards others was expected at all times. Their Sabbath was Saturday, not Sunday. Their worship banished musical instruments but produced some very distinctive a cappella singing. Their leader sought ecstatic visions of God, and he encouraged others to do it. Unhappily, there's evidence that as time went on, the leader was using drugs to seek these visions more and more. His goal in this whole movement was somehow to bring his followers back into what he thought would be a sinless spiritual state like Adam had before sin in the Garden of Eden. Well, most of you have probably added up that I'm talking about the effort a cloister movement that was famous beginning in the 18th century, a few miles north of here, a movement founded by Conrad Beisel, who came to these, this country from Germany. We know that Beisel deviated from mainstream Christianity. It wouldn't really be a high act of judgmentalism on my part to say that what he established became a cult because the mainstream pillar doctrines of Christianity like the Trinity, the authority of Scripture, salvation by grace, the emphasis on Christ's cross and resurrection, these things didn't get much emphasis and in some ways were even denied or bypassed within his teachings. And Conrad Beisel replaced what we would think would be biblical orthodoxy with a strange brew of man-made religious practices. As far as Christianity would be concerned to try to categorize his movement, it's almost neither fish nor fowl. And it fascinates, of course, today for the ability you have to go and see that place where these people gather. As I was studying this text in Colossians this week, and trying to get my mind inside what Paul was disputing with in particular teachers and and religious practitioners at Colossae, I could not get Conrad Beisel and the effort of cloister out of my mind because the longer I thought about it, the more I realized they were almost, point for point, a rather exact representation of the kind of thing Paul was dealing with in the first century that we know from the 18th century, and that there are versions of which around yet today. Maybe you would better understand what I'm going to call shadow religion today, something our text firmly denounces for those who know Christ as Lord, if you would keep what you know about the effort of cloister and those who live there in mind. There's so much emphasis in 2009 on personal spirituality, You used to go to a bookstore, a large chain bookstore, and you'd find a section called religion. Usually they've changed that now. It's spirituality. Because the emphasis, of course, has shifted away from doctrines, away from denominations, away from organized churches in any sense to people sort of seeking some thread of God in their life. 
in a touchy-feely manner. And people supposedly are seeking this kind of contact. At least the ability to publish books about it would, would say that there's evidence of that. But if they find that long-accepted definitions of who God is, particularly those from Orthodox Scripture, don't happen to satisfy them, there's a great willingness today to simply reinvent or revise or leave out or add things that will suit the individual seeker. A prime example, a notorious example that comes from all places from the entertainment industry is the influence that Oprah Winfrey has on spirituality. You almost want to laugh, but it isn't laughable as she influences literally millions of people who almost seem to hang on her advice to proclaim for them the latest spiritual guru or book about self-esteem thinly disguised as in some way religious and her idea of a pursuit of truth. Christianity is not, absolutely not, about man seeking God. It's about God seeking us. So faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, properly speaking, is not a religion. We would protest that with our last breath. Man-made religious inventions that are added to Christ, to the initiative of God to come and seek undeserving people on his own, at great cost, with his tremendous love, sending us Christ. The idea that we would add a lot of Religion to that is really an insult to God. And it departs from the Lord of life, even when we do it in small ways. In fact, practically any belief or practice that you add on top of revealed revelation of Christ from the Scripture is not simply a a harmless substitute. (coughs) It usually will become a fatal error. Conrad Beisel's religious folly up at Ephrata is something that's been repeated over and over across the centuries. Now, in the first place today, I would ask you to observe from our text here in Colossians 2 just some general characteristics of do-it-yourself religion. There is a turning point in our text. Paul has given us now for quite a few paragraphs this wonderful definition of the fullness of God residing in Christ and all that Christ is and all that Christ did, developing a very big and potent picture of Christ. And now he turns squarely for the first time. He's hinted at it before that he has some enemies working in the Colossian church who are trying to counteract his message. But now he turns and faces them rather squarely. And in this section that I read, the end of chapter 2, he gives us the best definition we would have of what these people were like as they came disguised as Christian teachers, but in fact, because of the religious scheme they had to offer, they were really enemies of the gospel. Elsewhere in Galatians, Paul talks one time about a gospel that he says is no gospel. It pretends to be a gospel, but it isn't good news. And that's what he's talking about here. As he says this, first of all, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to days you celebrate on a calendar. The key word is judge. 
And it is judgment there that means condemnation. Of course, we are to use judgment of discernment and wisdom. But Paul says, if people come along and start condemning you on the basis of a set of rules that they have that they think you're not conforming to, be on the alert. And evidently, there was a mixed bag of folk religion that these people were peddling in Colossae. Some of it had Jewish or Old Testament origins. Some of it didn't. It was a a mixture. We call it syncretism when you combine things from different sources into some mixed belief system. These were people who would look at you and say, well, do you want to be an elite Christian? Eat these foods only. And here's the list of foods to avoid. And oh, by the way, here are the fast days that you must observe and and be dedicated to fast on each of these days. And oh, here's the other list of what you must do and not do on the Lord's Sabbath day, and so on. And they had their lists that they were handing out. Food rules were seemingly one of the important things here. But this is something Paul speaks to numerous times in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8, he says, Food does not bring us near to God. We're no better off if we do or do not eat certain things. I'm so glad to hear that because there are certain family members that are always telling me I have to eat broccoli. But I, I will claim 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. 1 Timothy 4.4 4 says in a similar way, all food God created is good and nothing should be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. In the Old Testament, of course, there was a list of clean and unclean food, which was given largely for health reasons, to protect Israel, to keep them healthy in a a wilderness existence. But this, remember, the one writing here is the former Saul of Tarsus, who grew up in a Pharisaical household with a mother who certainly kept a kosher kitchen, who separated her dishes, you know, and uh, seafood from these dishes, never touched eggs from these dishes or something, and... Dietary laws were very, very important. Keeping them to a letter of the law was very important in Paul's background. But now as a Christian believer, he sees the big picture. And he understands that God gave these things, yes, for general health and equity one time. They were never given as a pathway to heaven. And anyone who got so distracted to say that just missed what God was saying. They were Old Testament signs and symbols, a lot like baptism this morning, signposts that pointed to Christ. And if you don't see what they pointed to, you've missed everything. You might remember in Acts chapter 10, a a similar message came to Peter when God was trying to convince Peter that Jews and Gentiles could both equally be saved by Christ. And Peter wasn't ready to hear that message at the moment. He was sent a vision of a great net or or sheet of cloth coming down, descending down out of heaven, and it was filled with both clean and unclean foods. And Peter was allowed to understand what God was telling him, that the Gentiles and the Israelites were being brought into faith in one Savior. And God was putting these things together. And while it might be wise in the New Testament era for Christians to leave certain foods alone or think for health reasons, of course, to not do certain things or to do other things. The point is that we not make these things into some kind of a religious 
legislation that God's Word has not made them to be. There are many Christians who are moderate with alcohol or more than moderate to the point that they would say because it causes so much harm, don't touch it at all. I'm just better off if I leave it alone, many would say. Others would say, well, no, the real important thing is that we be moderate because what does the Bible actually condemn? It condemns drunkenness just as it condemns gluttony. But it's the point here is that we don't make up rules that Scripture hasn't made up and then start condemning others with our rules. Or we are bound on a path of do-it-yourself religion when we make something not clearly commanded by God's Word into a principle that others can be condemned for or that we can praise ourselves for. You see, what we're doing is creating a scoring system. And there's sort of an instinctive human desire to do that, you know, a way to measure, to say, well, I'm doing pretty well by the scoring system. I'm not really sure about him or her or this one. Uh, They don't seem to be checking out as well on the scorecard. Should Westminster Church invent a rating system for spirituality, what would we put on it? Would we say that if you came to both a morning church service and an evening church service on the same day, you're twice as sanctified that day? Is that the intent of offering multiple services? Should we say that if you enjoy a glass of fine wine with a good meal on occasion and you're not a drunken person, that you should have sanctification points subtracted for that? Where do we go with this scoring system, you see? Who are we going to put on the committee that's going to decide where the taboos are and and where the lines are crossed? And yet human beings do make these lists up, and we work on these things subconsciously in our mind when no such contest or rating system is ordered by God. Colossians 2 says people who play these games and who impose these games are putting on a good appearance of humility. Oh, we're spiritual. But they're actually feeding their own vanity. And that would extend to other things that are going on here, such things as physical deprivations in the name of religion, severe fasting, uh, non-biblical rules about a celibate life. Of course, God's Word has things to say about sex before marriage but it celebrates sex within the marriage bond. And so if somebody comes and says, no, we can't have marriage anymore, we can't have that messing around, they're countering the Word of God with a stupid rule. People who would come along and say, oh, you have to really punish your body, deprive yourself, even various kinds of whipping and bloodletting and things like this have come into religion, and people say, oh, I'm, I'm more spiritual because it hurts so much. Where does that come from? And how in the world do such things draw a person closer to God? It, it reminds me, because what's being aimed at here is a kind of spiritual humility. There's a character quite famous in literature. Some of you will remember Uriah Heep. Remember Uriah Heep from David Copperfield? Uriah was actually a rather evil guy. He was entirely selfish, entirely out for his own gain in all occasions. And, you know, the kind of guy who was always looking at a situation and rubbing his hands and saying, how can I benefit here? But when he introduced himself to others, he always said, oh, I'm your humble servant. 
I'm very humble, I am. Well, those who are humble don't have to tell others that they're humble. They show it. Humility is not something that can advertise itself or be rated on a behavioral scale. We need to beware in this do-it-yourself characteristic of religion that prevails in all ages of making any issue that is not clearly set forth by God's Word as representing obedience to Christ into some kind of standard that would allow us to berate or devalue other people. Jesus said in Mark 7, nothing from outside of you defiles you from going into you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. The evil that comes from the inside is what makes a man unclean. Well, secondly, we just take this to a little bit of further application. And my second point would present to you some questions, I believe, this text helps us pose, evaluative questions that would let us ask these things of any allegedly Christian practice. There's actually five questions, I think, that maybe more, but I'm going to emphasize five that I think can be drawn from this text to help us evaluate things, whether they're merely religion and merely of man or whether they're of God. The first one comes from verse 17, and maybe the most important. As we ask this question, does your regulation or your practice that you're holding up for me come from the shadow of Scripture or the substance of Scripture? Well, a shadow cast on the wall is not you. I can't tell. Is there a shadow of me on this wall? I don't think there really is because of the many directions the lighting comes at me from here. But if there is a shadow that you cast against a wall, how silly it would be if someone walked into the room to to meet you and walked right on past you and walked over to the shadow to shake the shadow's hand and said, hello there, I'm very glad to meet you, shadow. You'd say, no, wait a minute, I'm over here. I'm the living person. A shadow can't talk to you. What do you want to meet a shadow for? And Paul objected to behavioral standards that he said were only the shadow of things to come. Now, he had specific things in mind here. He was referring primarily to Old Testament ceremonial and ritual laws that were all fulfilled by Christ and his coming at the cross and his atonement, which were useful to teach things for a certain period of time and may still today, by the way, have some wisdom about them. Some We say the law has a kind of general equity that can still instruct us today, but the ceremonial law and the ritual law is done because it's fulfilled. The shadows have given way to the reality of the real live goal that they were supposed to point to, Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen. You don't cling to the shadow things and exalt them any longer. I'm sure that the artist Michelangelo made many sketches crude drawings of charcoal on paper before he planned a great fresco. Imagine all the sketches that must have piled up before he did the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I think he actually burned a lot of these in his lifetime. Otherwise, they'd be out there in the art market. But if you owned a a sketch, a charcoal sketch of Michelangelo's, let's say a study that he maybe made for that gigantic marble statue of David, so magnificent, his one of the great statues of the whole world. You would treasure it, of course, and I'm sure it would be worth a lot of money because of who made it. 
But that crude sketch maybe of David's hand or foot or something would never substitute for the magnificence of experiencing the three-dimensional marble glory of David, larger than life, carved out by this, this great artist. And so Paul says here, be careful that you're not clinging just to shadows because the reality has come. Another question to ask of any religious thing is this. Is the issue in question more about emotions or sensual experience than God's revelation? Where does this come from? Verse 18, the second part of verse 18, when Paul talks about people who, quote, go into great detail about what they have seen. Now, that isn't explicit just as you read it there, but the commentators are pretty unanimous that this is talking about people who have seen visions. They've had secret revelations. They have when somehow they believe in the presence of God and they've gotten wisdom that you haven't got. And so they come with a kind of authority and say, listen to me, I've got something to tell you. God told me. And let's face it, if an authoritative, persuasive, charismatic kind of person, a learned person comes and, and says that, if, if he sounds convincing enough, you're going to stand back for a moment and say, whoa. What is this? I haven't had this. This person seems like he's been to the gate of heaven. I haven't been there. I better pay attention. But this, I think, is one of the great reasons why God's written word is so important. God has spoken to us once and for all authoritatively in history by his revealed word. He's given what we call a sufficient revelation in his word. And the emphasis is not today on somebody off in a corner saying, hey, come on over here. I've got the secret wisdom to tell you. Watch out. Be suspicious. Because here is where God has spoken so that all his people might hear and believe. A third question to ask is this. Does this spiritual practice unite people, bring them closer to Christ, or does it tend to pull them away from him? Verse 19 is what I'm thinking of here when he speaks about these teachers in Colossae and says they have lost the connection with the head, capital H, from whom the whole body is held together. The head is Christ. Other references tell us that. Ephesians 1.22 says God has placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him, quote, to be the head over everything for the church, his body. All right? You've got your religion. You've got your rules. Does it exalt Christ? Does it urge me to be more and more like Christ, which after all is the standard of sanctification in the New Testament? If someone's growing in spirituality, they're growing to look and sound and talk and act and think more like Christ. Does your system, do your rules do that for me? And do they therefore speak frequently in great praise about Christ Jesus? Do they feature him as God's one mediator? Do they exalt him as the architect and builder of everything God is doing in lives today? Or do they maybe mention him once in a while but push him off to the side as they promote their system? Beware if Christ is not the head and exalted as such. A fourth question is to ask whether some religious emphasis is divine or human in its origin. Verse 22 says that. Paul says the ways of false teachers in Colossae were, quote, destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. 
Now here once again, you might go away today and say, wow, the pastor was really attacking Conrad Beisel. Well, no, he's just a close-by example that we can learn from. But I would say you go and study the effort of Cloister, study what was behind it and what Beisel was doing there as a religious leader. You won't find very much of his teaching that has direct links to Scripture. You will find much that comes from novel notions of his, bits and pieces of philosophy and world religions and other things that he sort of cobbled together to say, here's something new, here's something novel. Come with me and find what it's all about. There's an awful lot of that out there today. And people don't have to go to live at Effort a Cloister to experience it. Anybody nowadays who writes a book with a unique enough narrative and some human interest stories in it that catch attention, that can get a publisher interested and then get a TV station interested and come and speak in some way and say, hey, I've got the new idea. I'm a shepherd of souls. Let me come tell you my way to find spiritual fulfillment. That person's going to get exalted. And they may do it within the uh, general umbrella of Christianity or maybe not. And they'll be prominent for a while. And their star will rise. And their book sales will rise until the next book comes along. Or the next guru gets initiated by some media voice. Beware of whether the teaching is human or divine. Fifthly and last, in verse 23, Paul says here, his concern is whether these religious fads are going to prove effective or futile over the long run. He said, you know, they do appear what they're teaching, to have some wisdom. This self-imposed worship, false humility, harsh treatment of the body, it makes people think like it ought to lead somewhere, but his test is, do they actually restrain people in their sin, in their sensual indulgence? And his answer is, no, they don't. You know, nobody ever goes back and, and adds up and says, were those lives really changed by keeping these rules? Paul is saying, People are not changed on the inside by a lot of religious huffing and puffing on the outside. And our main problem is not an external problem. It's our will. It's our mind. It's our motivations that need transformation. The apostle would say you can beat your body. You can deprive yourself of legitimate sexual expression in marriage. You can, you can have ecstatic visions. You can do all these things. What difference does it make? Show me a man-made religious system that really changes people in a lasting way on the inside. One insightful commentator on Colossians 2 wrote this. I couldn't say it better than he did. Quote, a man may whip and fast himself into a walking skeleton, yet his spirit within will still have all its lusts alive and quivering. He might place a shackle upon a robber's hand to stop him from committing an actual theft, but it will not cure the robber's covetousness. That's the point. Paul is after that which will change on the inside, and he brings then, finally, in conclusion, the only valid countermeasure to shadow religion. And it is what he's been talking about. I'm sorry, it's not something new. It's just trying to get this same point through to you that we've been talking about It is the fullness of Christ and what he has accomplished. 2.20 is the key there. As Paul gives a ringing challenge, he asks a rhetorical question to the Colossians uh, with being influenced by these false teachers. He says, look, 
Since you died to the basic principles of this world, remember, he said they died with Christ when he died on the cross, if there is. is Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why, as if you still belong to those things, are you submitting to their rules? I'm sure, I am sure, that in our midst today there are people, quite sadly, who've been in abusive relationships in the past in their life, maybe from childhood, maybe in marriage. But perhaps they've come to the place where the abuser has died and is no longer around. And now that binding relationship of that person's mindset and expectations and manipulations has actually ended by the grave. And yet you may know that there's still a powerful influence, and when certain things come along, you find yourself acting the way you were trained to act by that abuse in the past. And yet you're not shackled to it anymore, but you just can't quite convince yourself that its influence really has gone. Paul is trying to convince you, Christian believer, that the great thing the gospel of the cross does to shadow religion is drive a stake through its heart. We died to religion. It was destroyed by the sacrifice of Christ. After all, it was religion, you see, that took Adam and Eve astray in the first place. Satan's new invention, he had a new religion. He said, you know, God gave you that religion. He really doesn't want you to enjoy anything. Try my religion. And they tried Satan's way, and it destroyed them. God says the restriction of man-made ways to find peace with God were nailed to the cross. Christ has set us free to obey him through his word. Religion, as it is used today, by the way, is not even really a biblical word. God-anchored faith in Jesus Christ is unique good news that comes to us by the grace of God, the initiation of God, the power of God giving us faith to trust him and change us and secure us the way religion cannot do. I encourage you, beware of the shadow world of religion. Run the opposite way when you see it coming. Run to Jesus Christ, who's the great reality. Walk right on past the the self-help section of spirituality books. You've got the book. You've got the only book that reveals the reality, the fullness of the living and true God in the person of Jesus Christ. He, God intends, to be your all in all. And our Father, we ask once more that we would be helped, that we would be wiser in identifying so many false paths. Thank you for the one who is true, the one who is everything you intend to be to us, the one who can make all that known as we lean entirely on him. Help us to do that in spirit and truth. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Let's close with just the first and last verses. First and last verses of the final hymn.